All right, thanks, Nate. So this morning, we're continuing our study through the book of Galatians. And what we're seeing in Galatians is that we're having an opportunity to clarify what the gospel message is and what the gospel is not. It's actually a very confrontational book. But that's important because in every generation, there are messages that appear to be the gospel but actually fall short of the fullness of what the gospel is. So for example, in our society, there's sort of an incomplete gospel that's floating around there. Here's how I would state the incomplete gospel. It's that you have been forgiven, and because you're forgiven, you are guaranteed a spot in heaven. Now, those things are true if you're a believer in Jesus, but the reason that I say that it's incomplete is because it leaves too much of sort of a mushy middle, and it leaves people in one of two places, generally speaking. One is, you can be a person who's like, okay, I'm forgiven and I'm guaranteed a place in heaven, so the purpose of my life now is to be a super Christian. So I'm going to, through my own efforts, obey God, and in so doing, sort of separate myself from the regular mass of Christians and sort of get patted on the back for being a good Christian. This is called legalism in theological terms. The other response to this sort of incomplete gospel is that you can say, well, I'm forgiven and I'm guaranteed a place in heaven. Woohoo! I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter what I do in this life. Since I'm guaranteed a place in heaven, I can just live a life of sin, and I'll end up in the same place anyway. So why don't I just turn life into a party? And what Paul says in response to this, and we're going to see it sort of in this confrontation with Peter, but we're also going to see it in sort of the words of the text, is we're going to see that the gospel is justification and life. So in other words, the Bible is does not say that the gospel is just you're forgiven and so one day you'll spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. It's that you've been forgiven and you've been given new life. So you've not only been pardoned of your sins, you've actually been given a new power to live the Christian life. You can actually obey Jesus because when you believe in him, he comes to live inside of you. And so we're going to look at three clarifications on what the gospel is, what the gospel does this morning that will help us understand its nature together. So the first thing we're going to say is that the gospel exposes self-justification. So let's read again verses 11 through 14, just to see sort of the nature of this confrontation between Paul and Peter. It says, but when Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, another name for him, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? So this is a pretty pointed moment. Paul is 
confronting Peter. So you have sort of the main leaders of the Christian church, the apostles, and they're actually in a fight with each other. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. And there were actually sort of two factions that were sort of represented in Christianity at this time. There was sort of the true biblical view, but then there was the circumcision party. And that's what Paul is writing against in the book of Galatians. And the circumcision party taught that in order to be made right with God, you not only had to believe in Jesus, but you also had to obey the ceremonial law, which started with being circumcised. And if you weren't circumcised, then you weren't a real Christian. And so they were saying to the Gentiles, non-Jews, who came to faith in Christ, that in order to be complete members of God's family, they also had to get circumcised and begin the process of becoming Jewish. And so Peter had aligned himself with true Christianity. Jesus had come in in a vision and told him that it was okay for him to eat whatever and that he actually didn't have to obey the ceremonial law anymore. So Peter is hanging out with a bunch of Gentiles and he's enjoying the freedom that he has in Christ. So you can imagine him eating bacon-wrapped shrimp and pulled pork sandwiches. And he's gone his whole life without eating shellfish and without eating pork because those things were not allowed by the ceremonial law. And he's like, gospel freedom. This is amazing. And so he's going to cookouts and he's hanging out with Gentiles and he is loving his life. And then he hears that some members of the circumcision party, in other words, some of his old buddies, are coming into town. And so you can imagine Peter, he's got like the napkin tucked in the shirt. He's enjoying all this food. He hears that they're coming into town. He like takes it off, rubs the pork and the bacon grease off of his face and kind of throws that to the side. And these guys come into town and he runs away from the Gentiles and they say, hey, what were you doing? Were you hanging out with some Gentiles eating pork? He's like, no, why did you think that? Of course I wasn't. I'm, I'm a Jew. I obey the ceremonial law. And Paul says to Peter, you are not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. Here's what Paul's saying. You have given up your faith in Jesus functionally, and you are now, instead of seeking the approval of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, you have traded the approval of God for the approval of people. Guys, this is what self-justification looks like. It looks like trading the approval of God for the approval of the in-crowd. And so for Peter, the in-crowd was this circumcision party. And so he acts like he believes what they believe to fit in with them. And it's great for him because he's actually able to do this without the power of God in his life either. He's able to do it through his own efforts by sort of just cleaning up his outsides. And that's what self-justification does. It fits in with the in-crowd, however you characterize the in-crowd to be, and it cleans up the outside. That's the heart of every form of religion. And basically what happens then is you narrow down your life 
to a very manageable set of rules and expectations. You try to live according to those rules and expectations so that people never ask a question about what's actually happening inside of you. They are simply just impressed with the way that you're living your life on the outside. There's a million different ways of doing this. One of my favorite ways to illustrate this is from the movie Chariots of Fire. Has anyone seen Chariots of Fire before? Great old movie about running. The main character in Chariots of Fire is a guy named Eric Little. It's a movie about these guys and their their competition to win the 100 meters. It's a true story, probably fabricated, of course, because it's a movie, right? But Eric Little says throughout the movie, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. So he runs, and the motivation for his running is that He feels the approval of God. It's like, God, you made my legs to run. You made me to do this. And I love to run. I'm not running necessarily to win the race. I'm running ultimately for you because I love you. It's in a response to who you are and what you've given me. And that's contrasted throughout the movie with his main competitor, whose name is Harold Abrams. And Harold Abrams runs from an entirely different motivation. And here's what... He says at one point in the movie. And now, in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? You see the difference? Eric Little lives out of, out of this place of just seeking to please God and living for who God has made him to be. He says, you gave me these legs to run, I'm going to run. But Harold Abrams has said, I have to justify my existence. See, he's not looking to the approval of God. He's looking to the approval of this small running community, the in crowd. And he thinks, if I can run this race faster than anyone in the world, then at the end of the day, I'll get the approval that I'm looking for and I will be justified. Guys, we do this in all sorts of different ways. Think about the way that school is set up. Some of you right now, you're feeling so much pressure from your schoolwork because you're thinking, if I can just get the straight A's, if I can just show that report card to my parents at Christmas break and they say, great job, awesome work, you made our family proud, then you'd be able to feel like your existence is justified. Because to you, your parents are the in crowd and the academics are the path that you're on to try to get to this place of being justified in yourself. Or maybe you've sort of graduated from school, you've moved on to a job, and you think, if I can just climb the corporate ladder, if I can just make a little bit more money, or if I can just be recognized for how talented and smart and brilliant that I am, if my boss would just notice me and I would get a raise and I would get that bonus, then it would justify my existence. And so you're driven. It's not just that you're working hard. It's that you're working all these crazy hours and you're just trying so hard to be noticed. And that's because in our hearts, whether we're Christians or not, we have this tendency to go back to self-justifying behavior because we want someone 
to look us in the eyes and tell us that we are okay. And so what the gospel first needs to do, it just needs to expose us to this reality, but it's not to leave us there. It's actually to bring us to a greater reality, which is that there is a true justification that God wants to actually grant to you through the gospel. And that's what Paul is defending, and that is what he is preaching. He says this, starting in verse 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if our, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Okay, so Paul acknowledges right away that there's an obvious difference between Jews and Gentiles. Jewish people had been given the law of God. It was their forefathers who had founded the Jewish religion. And one of the things that they boasted in most was that they had the law of God. The ceremonial law, but also the moral law. But they made a grave mistake. Many of them did. And they forgot about faith in God, and they instead turned the law of God into a ladder to heaven. And so you imagine the different commandments that are listed in the Bible, like do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not covet. And they sort of thought of those as rungs of a ladder that they could climb in order to justify themselves, to make themselves right with God. But here's what Paul says levels the playing field between Jews and Gentiles. What levels the playing field is that actually the law serves a much different purpose than that. The purpose of the law is not to be a ladder that is climbable, but a ladder with steps that are a million feet apart. The purpose of the law, he says, is not to be a ladder that you can climb, but there, to be a ladder that there is no way you could climb in your own effort. So he's saying the key to moving toward a true justification is first to see that there's no way that you can justify yourself. And the way that Paul puts it in this passage is that through the law, he died to the law. So at one point, Paul was a great ladder climber. He was the best at it and he was justifying himself, but then he began to understand the law at its core, at its heart. And that's when he started to understand his need for Jesus. And so there's a couple different ways that the law, as Paul says, kills us. There's sort of a positive way and a negative way. So let's start with the positive way. Okay, think of the summary of the entire law. The Old Testament agrees with Jesus, agrees with the New Testament writers, that the summary of the entire law is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And closely related to that, you should love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so many times people will say, okay, guys, here's what we need to do. We need to sort of throw out all the rules of the Old Testament, and we just need to love God and love each other. Here's the problem with that. Have you ever actually tried to do that? That's really hard. And it turns out that that actually is not a lowering of the bar, but it actually is a raising of the bar. Okay, now think about this with me for a second. Think about the command to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Now, all means all. So think about the way that knowledge is cumulative in your life. Okay, so for example, if you have a test at the end of the semester and your professor tells you to start studying at the beginning of the semester so that you can know all of the material, you will know far more material if you start at the beginning and work all the way till the point when the test happens than if you cram the night before. Now think about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Think about this. If you haven't always done it, you actually never can. Because the love of God is cumulative. So if you start when you're an infant and do it until now, then you still have all. But if you haven't done it all the time, then you never can. So the point of the law is actually to expose your flaws, not to pat you on the back and tell you how great you are and tell you to keep on going. But guys, that's just the positive side. Think about the negative side of this. Okay? So normally the way that we look at what I'll call the negative commandments in Scripture, like do not murder or do not commit adultery or do not steal, is we think, sweet, I've never done those things before. Or if I have done those things before, at least I'm not as bad as this other person. But the law won't let us get away with that because the tenth of the Ten Commandments is actually do not covet. And this is the commandment that the Apostle Paul says personally just killed him. And the reason that it killed him is it showed him that what God actually desires is your heart. And Jesus explained this further by saying that if you even look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery in your heart. And he also said that if you even get angry with somebody, that you have committed murder. And that's because what's at the root of all of those things is this inner desire to be first and to be best. And when we can't be first and best, what we do is we covet what other people have. And so you see the law leaves us without the possibility of finding justification on our own. We are actually left devastated before God. And so Paul says, I want to show you a different way to find righteousness. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. So here's what's true about Jesus. Jesus looked at the law of God to love God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength, and to love his neighbor as himself. And he said, I can do that 
Because I am the eternal son of God. I am exactly in his image. And what he says, I do because that is what pleases me from the inside out. And so what we see in Jesus' life is that he fully obeyed that commandment. From his infancy through his manhood all the way to the cross, he lived for the glory of God and for the good of other people. And there was never a crossways desire in his heart. He never wanted what somebody else had. He never hated anyone else. He never lusted after a woman or stole anything that wasn't his. In fact, he never even wanted to. He was perfect. And then what we see at the cross is Jesus being punished by God. Why did the only good person who ever lived get punished? The Bible says that the reason for that is because God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus was killed for your law breaking, for your failure to love God and neighbor, for your covetousness and adultery and murder and stealing. When you look at the cross, you have to see that that's the punishment that you deserve. But he did that in order that you might be clothed in his righteousness. So Jesus on the cross got what you deserve so that you, by way of the cross, could get what he deserves. And the way that you receive that is not by working hard for it or praying a lot or repenting a certain way, but it's by faith. You believe that it's true. You look away from yourself and your own self-justifying tendencies and you look to Jesus and you say, I want that. I want a salvation that has been accomplished outside of me by someone else because I see that that is the only possible way that I can become righteous. Let me bring this down to earth for you. I remember I had a, a friend in college. His name was Richie. And Richie uh, used to play high school football. And Richie was an offensive lineman, and he weighed 175 pounds, which means he wasn't a good offensive lineman. A terrible offensive line. But he always was talking about high school football like that was his glory days. Like he was an amazing football player. Okay, so now imagine with me if Richie wanted to win the Super Bowl. There would be two ways for him to do that. One would be we lived in Indiana at the time, so he could have gone down and tried to get a tryout with the Colts. And so he's working really hard. He's like, I'm an offensive lineman. I'm going to beef up. I'm going to lift weights. And I am going to transform myself into the type of person who can contribute to a Super Bowl winning team. Impossible. There's no way that he can do that. There, he, he wasn't made for it. He didn't have the genetic ability to do that. Here's the way that Richie chose to win the Super Bowl. He became the most diehard Indianapolis Colts fan that I've ever met. And in 2006, he bought like every jersey. So he had the like Marvin Harrison jersey, the Peyton Manning jersey, the Reggie Wayne jersey, all that. And so the Colts made it all the way to the Super Bowl and they were playing the, the Chicago Bears and we all had Richie's jerseys on and we're watching the game together. 
And the initial, it looked bad at the beginning, kickoff, Devin Hester returns it, 100 yards for a touchdown, oh no, the Colts are down 7-0. But then the Colts came back and they won, won the Super Bowl. And do you know what Richie said at the end of that Super Bowl game? We won the Super Bowl. And I'm thinking, okay, here's what you contributed to this. You ate some Doritos, you bought some jerseys, and you rooted really hard for the Colts. But let's be clear about this. They won the Super Bowl. And so what was he doing? He was crediting their win to his account. Guys, this is how you get saved. You are a terrible Christian. You're really, really bad at it. You're a sinner. You can't possibly earn God's approval through the law. And so what you do is you throw on a crucified jersey. You're like, I'm on Jesus's team and he's going to win this victory without me. And I'm going to believe that what he did on the cross applies to my account. And that by saying we, I get his righteousness and he gets my sin. And in the end, I am a victorious person because of what he did, not because of what I did. Guys, have you transferred your trust from yourself and your own righteousness? Are you tired of defending yourself and acting like you're good and keeping the mask on? And do you want his righteousness? Because the gospel is that his righteousness is a gift. It's free. But guys, that's not the end of the story. Some people like to stop the message there. But the story continues. It's not just that as Christians, we get his righteousness, but we're actually supernaturally given the ability to obey his commandments, to be transformed into his image. And that's because the gospel not only justifies us, it also imparts life. Listen to what Paul says. In addition to Jesus' righteousness being transferred to our account on the cross, listen what he says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So again, Paul's talking about the crucifixion, but he's talking about it from a different angle here. He's saying not only did Jesus perform for you on the cross, but by means of the cross, he actually imparts his life to you. So here's what happened at the cross. That old nature, your flesh, was crucified. It was bound. That sinful tendency in you has lost power. And that's because Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he took away the condemnation that your sin deserves. And now what's happened is not only has his righteousness been credited to your account, but he has actually come to live in you. You see that? Paul says, it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. Think about that. Jesus lives in you. You have his life, which means as a Christian, the response to the gospel is not, okay, just go try hard and try to prove how much you love Jesus. 
It's that Jesus' life has come to live in you in such a way that it is inevitable that you will be conformed to the image of Jesus. Because if Jesus lives inside of you, then you will become like him. Yes, there's effort involved. Yes, there's obedience involved. But it's not the effort of us doing it on our own. It's the effort of Jesus doing it in and through us. So Paul says, I worked harder than anybody else, but it was not me. It was the grace of God working in and through me. So the question of the gospel is not just, do you want to be forgiven? The question of the gospel is, do you want life? Do you want life? Do you want freedom from your sin? Do you want freedom from your lust? Do you want freedom from your anger? Do you want freedom to be joyful, to be faithful, to love others, to love God? Do you want that freedom to be the type of freedom that doesn't come from you going out and trying to perform for everybody, but is actually like a spring of living water that's coming from within you. Because if you want to be forgiven and you don't want that, you don't want to be a Christian. So what I'm inviting you into is life. Okay, again, here's what the circumcision party was saying. Okay, the circumcision party was saying you have to believe in Jesus and obey Jesus to get eternal life which is almost the gospel. But if it's almost, then it's not at all. Here's the true gospel. True Christianity says you believe and you have eternal life. Literally the life of Jesus in you. And if Jesus is in you, he's risen from the dead, he can't die again, which means you can't die, which means you have eternal life and you also have power to say no to sin. And then the consequence of having eternal life is that you obey. Guys, we have this principle of life written in to nature. Okay, my wife has been planting hostas all over our whole yard. Do you know how you do this? I didn't, you know, apparently hostas are like the most durable plant on planet Earth. But essentially, all you have to do is like cut off a little piece of a hosta and then take that little piece and plant it in the ground and voila, another hosta grows. But, but you got it, right? You had a huge hosta and you take a piece of that hosta, you plant it in the ground and you grow another hosta. So here's what Jesus has done. He has taken himself. And when we receive him, he's placed himself within us. And the inevitable consequences of that, we're at all different stages in growth is that we're going to get the same kind of life that Jesus had over time. And it's not that we, we try really hard to produce the life of Christ in us, but it's that we cultivate this life that is already there. Do you want life? Do you want to know the power of the resurrection in you. Yes, you are justified. You have been made right with God. Jesus' righteousness has been credited to your account. But you are also, in the gospel, offered life.
You have the power this week to say no to your flesh, no to your sin, to admit that you have problems and to trust in Jesus to produce his life in and through you. What kind of a difference would that make in our families and in our communities and in our classrooms? If we would trade in this old life that we're living and instead would submit and allow the life of Christ to flow through us like living water. That's what Paul wants for us. That's what I want for us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you came. Not just that we could have forgiveness, but that we could have life and have it abundantly. And I'm saying, I want that life. I want more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, and more self-control. And I just admit to you, God, that that so often I fall back into those self-justifying tendencies by my own power for other people's approval instead of by your spirit for your smile and approval. God, would we be able this week just to give you the keys once again to our life? Jesus, would you produce in us what we cannot produce on our own, eternal life? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.